0: Welcome to episode 39 of the Red Devil Talk podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Bernard Jackman. In part two, we speak about things such as creating winning cultures in sport, instilling winning mindsets, and I pick his brain on the notion of achieving high performance. We also speak about things such as self-doubt, his coaching in Grenoble, so there's plenty in there this week. Check it out if you fancy it. Cheers.
1: for it. James can only fist it. It comes for
2: counting Kat- oh!
0: You joining Leinster in 05, so I want to jump back to that for a moment, if that's okay.
1: No, absolutely.
0: I guess at the time when you joined Leinster, there was a perception of them that they had the talent, but maybe they were a bit soft. Maybe they didn't have the appetite. Of course, you did want to have success. You won the Magnet League in 08. You won the Heineken Cup in 09. You mentioned little things like taking accountability, but how did you as a club go about changing that culture or changing the mindset, if you like, to a winning one that could challenge Munster?
1: Yeah, I think um, you mentioned it there uh, as a club. So it's like the Irish teams are usually known as provinces, and and um, one of the things we looked at was actually building a, a club mentality rather than you know we're just all here because there may have been a tendency for for players to concentrate more on international rugby um, or line British and Irish lines or the off-field stuff, the endorsements. Because Dublin's where the market is. Dublin is where the population is. And, you know, we had a lot of players playing international rugby who had high profiles. And and it was easy to get caught up in the whole, you know, um, celebrity lifestyle culture, uh, which can happen easier probably in a big city where there's a little bit more anonymity than there is elsewhere. Um, I would say that Dublin's still very small compared to a a London or a Paris. But um, that was the thing. We spoke about making it a club becoming closer as a, as a band of brothers, become putting the club first. So, um, you know, if somebody came back from international period and, um, you know, historically maybe there's a tendency to to not play the first week back for, for the club um, or not play well the first week back as a kind of a hangover of the Six Nations or whatever. You know, we were very quick to, to challenge that and call that out and and, and um, make sure that wasn't acceptable and just started to be harder on each other and and I suppose how it changed is I'll give you an example is that probably 2005 2006 we would go into video reviews on a Monday morning and you know maybe outsiders don't understand this but a match is 80 minutes you don't watch the 80 minutes okay you, the coaches will get up and actually pick out three or four clips from different parts of the game that are relevant, that we can learn from, and they analyze those. Uh, and, and generally there's a discussion around those. So that can take 45 minutes in total, and that'll be your review as a team. Obviously, individually, um, you're expected to go through the whole game and, and your moments, etc. But my point is that probably 2005, 2006, if I had a big mistake in the game or I didn't know my job or didn't uh, execute properly, you might go into that meeting basically going, subconsciously, so or or say, I hope I don't get picked up on that. And if you do get away with it, then it's like, Oof, got away with it. Whereas in two thousand eight nine, fellas were putting their hands up before the coach got a chance to put on the um, the footage and saying, look, it, I know in the tenth minute I missed that tackle for that try, that's not acceptable. Um, I'll sort it out. And that sounds easy to say that, right? But we all have egos. We all don't like to. Admit we weren't great to our peers because we, we want the respect we respect them, so that was the, that's the first part of it. But then the most important part of it was if I was the one who missed a tackle, um, and I might be for a try if I just miss a tackle and I say, Look, I'm going to fix it, well, then on a Tuesday after training or before training, when there's an opportunity to do extras, you know, I need to be out there doing that. So we we become much better at holding ourselves to account, but then also much better at actually putting in the work that w- would, fix, would fix the issue. So it might be a, a lack of knowledge. It might be a, a technical issue. It might be a fitness issue. It might be an s issue. It didn't matter what the issue was. We started to take on responsibility to, to fix it ourselves rather than being coach-led.
0: It's kind Don't of like it. a no-blame bl- no culture.
1: Yeah, exactly. Fix it yourself, own up to it. Yeah. Ho- uh, be accountable for it before somebody else has to basically blame you. But look at nobody's perfect... There was times when, when, as players, then we had to challenge another player and say, look, that's not good enough or I had to be challenged, for example. And, and, and then it's how you take that. Do you take that as a personal attack? And do you say, oh, F you, you're a prick or whatever? Or do you say, okay, yeah, I know you're giving me this feedback because it's hurting the team. I'm, I'm going fi- to, I accept that. I'm going to fix it.
0: You mentioned making mistakes there. I know you're fascinated by the idea of ch- achieving high performance and psychology. In terms of performance, how did you deal with the pressure in the big moments? And what I mean by that is if you if you missed a few throws, how did you halt that mentally to ensure that it didn't manifest into something negative in your mind and sabotage your whole performance?
1: Yeah, I'll be honest with you, and I struggle with this, um, and it's, it's interesting you're going into the into the psychology um, route for your education, but uh, I would have spent six or seven of my of my career not handling it well you know sabotaging my own performance not parking it not moving on running around the field like when I should be thinking about what the next task was thinking about you know the mistakes I've made in the previous 20 minutes and and then that actually you know um, hijacked my chances of, of of being better for the next 20 minutes and then having having regrets for the next couple of days going in on a Monday lack in belief because you've had a poor performance and it just becomes um, really difficult to, to stop it. So what I became much better at was having a really strict routine for, for a throw, which gave me a process, which allowed me to get my mind into the uh, the things that were important, which is visualization, seeing the, yeah, seeing the fly of the ball, seeing the guy catch it, mentally going over the call on my head to make sure I knew the movement, the timing also gave me a chance to get my breathing down, which, generally got higher the more more stressed you were and flustered you were, and um no matter what happened if i drew a good throw a bad throw um if so basically as a hooker you uh you have to be behind the white line on the touch line your feet have to be behind the white line so i had i built in this part of my routine that as i as i stepped over the white line i said it's done to myself okay so and effectively that was just a mental trigger that's that's done now, and, and it wasn't that I was willing to, to forget about it. It was that was done until I got the footage sent to me that the the next day, and then I would sit down with a pen and paper, and go through each throw from a technical point of view, from a efficiency point of view, from an accuracy point of view, and grade it and take notes and look and see what I had to do. But I didn't do that during the game anymore, um, and it sounds so obvious, but I know goal kickers do it. They, you know, they reaffirm positive kick and you'll see some of them they'll 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 slap their, their leg as in it's gone or whatever. But from a positive they'll go that that's great. And so it's just little things that I built into my own routine that led me to playing better than I ever played before. So there, there's definitely something in it. But um it's hard. Look it, it, it's it's sometimes I had to learn by through failure really. But um you know I, I think there was a lot greater understanding. You think when I started playing professionally or 1998, you know, we were still probably a little bit naive on the whole sports psychology um, side of it. And now, thankfully, it's, it's, it's much, more, much more widespread, which is great.
0: In terms of loss, if you like, you mentioned that pro players tend to move on from uh, winning quite quickly, and it's the defeats that linger. How did you deal with defeats, or what was your process?
1: Again, when, when I was younger... Blame myself, really critical of my own action, or, or um, either through mistakes I made or things I could have done that I didn't do. I'm very hard on myself, uh, and you know, but but probably later in my career and as a coach, I tried to be a lot more cold-hearted around it. So basically, looked at my preparation. You know, did I did I have a good week? Um, did I prepare properly? Did I do my study? Did I do my rehab? Did I train hard? they Have the right nutrition, etc. So, once I got a lot of those right, you know, and then I looked at the game and I was like, Well, did the opposition do something that we didn't expect? Um, you know, did I play badly because I've got a technical weakness or whatever? I, I, I'm trying actually like have a uh, and it's something that came in from the from the uh SAS it's this is pre, uh, pre-mortem, post-mortem, or the elite medicine, you know, where you look at what's ahead of you, you make a plan. You follow the plan. There's the action, the battle or the operation. And then you basically analyze it coldly. And then you make a new plan um, for the next week. So just became more, more of a rhythm of constant preview, review, um, pre-mortem, post-mortem. What do I need to do? Yeah, checklist, checklist, tick the box. And it takes away a lot of the emotion and, and, the, and the worries around you know, well, what could I have done there? Well, if you couldn't see that threat coming, uh, because th- the team did something completely different, well, there's not a lot you can do about it then. You know, or if you could have seen it, well, then you need to look out at how you're doing your homework, etc. So, yeah, that's 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 how I how I got, how I dealt with it. But as I said, I got better at it later on in my career than I was early. Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. This
2: podcast is brought to you in association with Classic Retro Shirts. Classic Retro Shirts sell a large variety of retro jerseys from a number of clubs and countries and are very prominent on Manchester United. United season ticket holders themselves giving fans a chance to look back through history. Classic Retro Shirts are on Instagram at Classic Retros 2 or you can visit their website at ClassicRetros.co.uk To get a £10 discount off your purchase, you can use the code RDT10 at the checkout on the website, or you can send the code via direct message to their Instagram. Classic Retro Shirts.
0: You touched on your time as a coach there. Obviously you went to France, Grenoble. How much of a challenge was that in terms of a language barrier?
1: You look at it, it's very difficult. Um, but I wanted that challenge. I mean, I had a few chances to go as a player. I've been offered um, a couple of deals to go there and I would have been uh, very tempted by the idea of playing in the top 14 but I also wanted to play more games for Ireland. So, um, if you go to France, uh, you're pretty, pretty much, you know, writing off your Irish career. So, we decided um, that we wouldn't go as a player but definitely if an opportunity came to go as a as a coach, I would take it. So, I went there, that we were in the second division and I got a job as defense coach. So I said to myself, look, the players will give me three months where they'll understand they don't have the language. But after that, I need to be able to coach in as much French as I possibly can. And So yeah, and I, I, I spoke to Joe Schmidt who had gone through that process in Claremont. He told me how he did it was where, you know, first while he spoke in English, while he was getting his lessons, et cetera. And then, he would write down what he was going to do the next day of training, what, you know, what were the key messages, what the session involved. And he would go to the to the, lec- or the professor, the, the language teacher, and say, look, I need to say these in, in, uh, in French. And he said it actually helped him a lot because rather than give players a million messages, he actually went, okay, well, look, what are the most important things that I need to tell the team tomorrow? So when he went out of the field, he, he'd already learned how to say four things, as in four messages, so they were the session was built around that and the feedback was built around that. So it actually helped him, he reckons, you know, become a better coach because it helped him simplify things. And even when he came back to Leinster and he was coaching, obviously through his first language is mm-hmm. English, he stuck to that whole thing around what's important now, what are the key messages, and let's just make sure we hammer them home. So the hardest part about not being able to speak French at the start was not being able to build up as close a relationship with the players as I, w- as I would like. So forget about the technical stuff, the tactical stuff. As I said, you know, we had people in the dressing room who were bilingual, who could help you translate. And also we had 14 foreign foreigners, 14 people whose, whose first language was English. So had a squad of 40. Um, so there was no harm having one coach who was speaking in English at the start because, you know, they were subject to, The guy speaking French that they didn't understand so and that was never translated the other way so that wasn't a problem but the problem was getting to know them getting to know their stories their their backgrounds their their passion you know where they want to go you know what their family situation is like and and I loved you know after three months to be honest I'd got a I'd worked really hard at it I I did lessons in um, in in the club I I did uh, a night course you know five nights a week I listened to Games through French and podcasts, and whatever I, I really hammered it. And uh, after probably three months, I was able to have those basic kind of interaction conversations that we would have in our own language if we met someone for a coffee. So, yeah, that was the for me, that was the kind of passage that I went through
0: from speaking to you for almost 40 minutes now. You strike me as a lad who loves a challenge,
1: yeah, absolutely. I'd be bored with that challenges. challenges and, <laughs> and, and, and to be honest, I mean, when I left coaching, I went into a a job which I didn't have any background in, any skill sets, you know, really high end data products for financial uh, services institutions where, you know, you need to be on, on the money. We've got 192 different products. And effectively for me, that was like learning French. That was like our Japanese. It was so different. And I just had to get my head down and and put the work in and and master it. So no, I do like a challenge. And I I like a challenge in life sport and doing media where, Effectively, you know, if you're on TV, you're under a bit of pressure to, to give a, a coherent answer. So, yeah, for me, without that kind of stuff, my, my I'd find my life boring.
0: I suppose like every career in sport, you've had highs and lows. I've mentioned the successes with Leinster. I want to ask you about your stint in Wales with Dragons. Yeah. Uh, what for you as a coach was the most disappointing aspect of your stint in Wales?
1: I think we did a huge amount of of, of, of things right. and. I think that we changed, we, we changed the culture. There's a, there's a misconception that if you in and do things right, you're going to get results uh, straight away. But a lot of people don't understand that an elite sport, it's unbelievably competitive. And there's two things that affect performance for me. There's um, your capacity, okay, and your behaviors, right? So your capacity is the talent you have right uh, and your behaviors is basically how you how you live your life and how, how you live as a team so it's your culture but you can have a really good culture but if your capacity is really poor um you're going to fail so for example if i'm not genetically fast um i could train all the time i could have the best coach in the world but i'm not going to make the olympic qualifying time for 100 meters right that's the reality of it there's and but because it's competitive. No, I'll get faster for sure, I right? But um I'm not gonna be able to run the, uh, the hundred meters. I might practice golf every single day, but I might be a pro golfer because um and I might not have the innate talent uh to, to do it. So um the reality is, and this is why you see the top coaches, they wait for the for the for the right jobs where the squad either have the talent or they have the backing financially to go and buy it. Um and if if talent wasn't important, you know, why does Pep Guardiola, you know, spend a fortune in in, Ma- in Manchester City, or you know, why does um, Jurgen Klopp bother buying in really good players? Because he cr- he's a really good guy, creates a lovely environment. Obviously, tactically uh, good. It's a it's a big club. So there's the there's the answer. But when sometimes we look at sport and results, we we forget about that. You know, I mean, we just t- see a team struggling we think oh, they must be doing things really badly. We actually did a huge amount right with with the Dragons in terms of what best practice is. But the age profile of the squad, um, the depth of the squad, et cetera, the, the salary budget we had, meant that we had to bring through a lot of young players. Um, so we were giving guys 17, 18 debuts in professional sport because that's the model we had. And when you do that, you're going to have to wait. So for me, as I said, I've given it that kind of cold review that I said I, I got good at and I was like we probably started from a, a poor base and you know we we didn't have the talent that the teams were playing against have so we just have to uh, we just had to wait and, and and build slowly which in pro sports a risky business but I, I have no regrets around kind of what we did there just obviously the, the results didn't win as many games as we would like but when I look at how much we spent I'd say we probably won the money we deserved. We won the many games we we spent the money for. You know,
0: what do you think you learned about yourself from that experience? Um,
1: that I'm very resilient, um, and the pressure didn't get to me, and I I followed through, and I I built a really strong team around me, both players and coaches who are still very uh, still very friendly with, still very loyal uh, loyal to me, and I'm loyal to them, and that's a really good sign for me that I left Wales, didn't leave because of player power or um, Coach is not enjoying working with me. It was just we, we didn't get the results that the people quickly enough for the people um, in charge.
0: When you left the job in Wales, was there any any self doubt?
1: Yeah, obviously it's a bit of a knock. But as I said, I looked at it realistically and was like, well, look, I'm very close to Warren Gatlin. Um, and Warren would have been you know, a mentor of mine. Warren would have understood what was happening in the Dragons and, you know, uh, Like, it's a very difficult job. I mean, it's a job probably not not many people in pro rugby wanted to take. So I'd say the biggest mistake in the Dragons was taking the job in the first place.
0: The big question on this podcast, and you've touched on it already in some ways, I think, but what do you believe are some crucial factors in achieving high performance on a consistent basis?
1: Perseverance, resilience, bringing people together. Not many people uh, create a high-performing team on on their own. Um, It's... It's very much shared shared responsibility, shared journey, and uh yeah, so for me they're they're really 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 important
0: and finally, I'm conscious of time we're we're hitting an hour almost I want to wrap up by having a brief chat about united if that's okay
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: what's your view on the current team, olive or obviously there was a draw the weekend against yeah.
1: Liverpool. my view is and, and, and again, I'm not an expert you you'd be an expert in this, but I'm kind of surprised how it's come come together really um I uh, watched the other night and obviously, you know, it was a good defensive performance and away from home, probably a point at Liverpool is is good. But uh, I'm not sure we're there yet. I'd be surprised if we win the title. But look, it's good to see us picking up points and, and there's obviously a lot of talent in that group. Probably frustrating earlier on in the year just to lack consistency, you know, brilliant wins in Paris Saint-Germain, and then you know, just seeing some some really poor performances. So look, I'm I'm glad that we look like we're we're better than we were. But I'm not I'm not sure that the page has turned yet. I'm not convinced he is the man. But probably now, you know, they've backed him this long. Um, they probably need to back him uh, another while. Because look at the way it is with football at the moment. Most new managers, they bring their own staff. They want to bring their own players. And, you know, for, for a year and a half, we're going to be talking around, you know, we need to give him time. We need to, it needs to be his team, et cetera. So, Look, I think we have talent and you know, it's, it's obviously a very expensive squad. There's some, there's some talent within it. So I'd be the opinion that we, we need to give him time now. But I am sure he's the right man.
0: Bernard, it was great to meet you. I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, great. And best of luck with your, with your studies. And anything you're going to do for you, let me know.
2: Thanks very much. All the best. You too. Love you. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to Red Devil Talk. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Devil Talk. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. If you have any questions or comments or want more information on Red Devil Talk podcasts, you can get in touch via email at reddeviltalkmedia at gmail.com. The Red Devil Talk podcasts are a Red Devil Talk media production.